to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, thank you so much for drawing us together as you have today. I pray that I would not get in the way of what you plan to do, but that Holy Spirit, you would be the one to lead us into all truth. Let it be for the glory of Christ's name alone. It is in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. So here in the opening verses of chapter 7, we'll be seeing what occurs before the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And now we're going to see that he had no honor even in his own family. So verse 1, after this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He didn't want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. So despite the religious leaders' plots, Jesus would actually have to go to the temple in Jerusalem out of obedience to God's command to attend the Feast of Tabernacles. Some people wonder about Jesus' family, but the Greek word here in the text for brother is adelphos, which was usually used to describe either brothers born of the same two parents or half-brothers who shared one parent. In fact, one definition of this word Adelphos means of the same womb. So scripture seems to indicate that Mary and Joseph did have other children. And if you're interested, you can look that up in Matthew 13, 53 to 58. It is believed that James, who wrote the book of James, was one of Jesus's half-brothers. He came to faith in Christ only after Jesus rose from the dead, and James eventually became a leader of the church in Jerusalem. But here in John chapter 7, we see that Jesus' own siblings mocked him. And interestingly, that very fact fulfilled Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah found in Psalm 69, verses 7 to 8. There we're told, For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. As we're told in John 7 verse 5, even his own brothers did not believe in him. Now, I want you to pay attention to that. It doesn't say that they didn't believe him. It says that they didn't believe in him. And 
that means that they really hadn't understood that he was their Messiah or their Savior. And so they mocked him and they questioned his motives, thinking that he was trying to make a name for himself. Verse 6, Therefore Jesus told them, My time is not yet here, for you any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. So Jesus says that he's really working to the Father in heaven's timetable, and he suggests that they go on without him. But Jesus was always very careful to obey God's law, and God's law required that he go to that feast, and so he went in secret. As we study in this chapter, we're going to see him interact with three different groups groups of people. And to make it more clear, there are going to be the Jewish leaders as one group. Those are mentioned in verse 11, for example. In verse 12 and 20, we're going to see a group referred to as the crowds. These are the people who have come into Jerusalem for the feast. In other words, they're the pilgrims. And later on, in verse 25, we're going to see a third group of people, and they are the people of Jerusalem, those who lived in the city. And it becomes evident from what we read that they seem to know more about what's going on than the visitors do. Let's look at verse 10. However, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said he is a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. So you see immediately two of the groups are mentioned here. The religious leaders expected him to come to the feast and they were there looking for him. But there was also um, a lot of secret debate about Jesus among the pilgrims who had come into the city. But all of that was whispered so as not to infuriate the religious leaders. John then tells us what happened at the feast itself. Not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews there were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Jesus is no longer acting in secret. He comes into the courts and he begins to teach. And the religious leaders knew that Jesus had not been to any of their theological schools. Believe me, they checked. And yet he was able to teach like no one who they'd ever heard before. In fact, Jesus claimed to speak the very word of God. Look at verse 16. Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me?
He told them that his teaching came from God who sent him and that if they were truly interested in doing what God's will was, they would know that he spoke from God and not on his own authority. Unlike the religious leaders, Jesus did nothing for his own glory. His actions brought glory not to himself, but rather to his Father in heaven. And there was nothing false about Jesus. He knew that they weren't truly keeping the law of Moses, and it was because they were trying to kill the very one that the law pointed to. It is important we understand that Jesus has been speaking to the religious leaders as he said this, because it seems the crowds of pilgrims visiting Jerusalem overheard part of the conversation, and they were actually really shocked at his claim that people were trying to kill him. You see, they didn't know of all the religious leaders' plans and what had been going on in Jerusalem day to day. Verse 20, you're demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle and you are all amazed. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though it actually did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry at me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. You see, the miracle that Jesus is talking about here is when he healed the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda, telling him to get up and walk and take his mat on the Sabbath. Jesus is trying to help them understand how he could do such a thing and not be guilty of breaking God's law. And what he does is he reminds them of the all-important rite of circumcision, which had been passed down to them through their ancestors. Leviticus 12 verse 3 commanded the Jewish people to circumcise their male children on the eighth day after birth. But what if that eighth day fell on a Sabbath, when according to religious leaders, all work was forbidden? What would they do? Well, the religious leaders would circumcise the child anyway. You see, the Sabbath law could be set aside for the greater good, and the religious leaders knew it. By saying that they should stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly, Jesus was really pointing out that the religious leaders were objecting just to be difficult. In verse 25, we learn that the residents of Jerusalem had no problem understanding that the rulers were plotting to kill him. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. So you see, the residents of Jerusalem know that Jesus is a marked man. 
Yet, they wonder if the religious leaders were coming around to accepting Jesus as the Messiah because no one had tried to stop him from preaching. In truth, the religious leaders hadn't tried to openly stop him because they were afraid of the crowds in the city and that they might riot. The people of Jerusalem really doubted that Jesus could be the Messiah because they knew where he came from. And you have to understand that at that time, there was a belief that was held by many that the Messiah would just simply appear out of nowhere. Apparently, those who held to that idea, though, had paid no attention to what God had spoken through the prophet Micah in the Old Testament. Because if you read Micah 5 verse 2, you'll see that scripture was very clear that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Still many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? So once more, Jesus says that he's from God himself, and it's because of his statement that the leaders seek to arrest him. But try as they might, they could not, because his hour had not yet come. It is all according to God's timing and not theirs. In the meantime, many of the people begin to believe in him, asking, to the horror, I'm sure, of the Pharisees and the chief priests down at the temple, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go to where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? So Jesus here is speaking of his sacrificial death and his return to heaven. And he tells them that he will not be here much longer. But the religious leaders are an unspiritual lot, and they think that he's talking about going to teach the Jews scattered in foreign countries. Now, if Jesus was planning on going on a teaching tour to the Gentile nations, the Jewish leaders certainly would not wish to follow. But Jesus didn't say they would not want to follow. He said that they could not follow him. And it's really because there is no place in heaven for those who have not believed in Jesus and entrusted themselves to him. Remember, all of this took place during the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a celebration that took place over a period of seven days each year to commemorate God's presence dwelling among them in the past. 
Several ceremonies carried out during the feast centered around symbolically recreating God's presence in the temple. The greatest day of the celebration was the seventh day, which was known as the Great Hosanna. It was on this day that the Jewish people believed that God revealed whether or not there would be rain in the coming year. It was on this day of the feast that an important water ceremony was carried out by the high priest. Israel had different sources of water in those days. They had wells and cisterns, but those were unreliable because wells can dry up and cisterns can be broken. Their most important source of water was spring water, which was known as living water because it just leapt forth from the earth. One source of living water was at the nearby pool of Siloam. On each day during the feast, the high priest would take a golden jug to go and fill at the pool of Siloam. The living water would be brought back and poured around the base of the altar in the temple. On the last and greatest day of the feast, as the high priest entered through the water gate for a final time, the trumpets would sound, and after walking around the altar seven times, the water would then be poured out as a great shout rose up from the people, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. That word Hosanna means save now, and as that happened, Jesus' voice rang out. Look at verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. In part, this water was a reminder that God had given them water to drink in the wilderness, which made life possible. But remember, too, that in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, God revealed himself to be the fountain of living water. So this was about God's presence with them. Though God's glory had been seen in the first temple. It had never been seen in the second temple that was built. However, the prophet Ezekiel had seen a vision, and it's recorded in Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. And it was a vision of the river of life flowing from God's presence in the temple. And perhaps the priest's water pouring ceremony was really man's own useless attempt to try to fulfill the vision that Ezekiel had seen. On the last day of the feast, as the temple priest carried out this empty tradition and the people cried out to God, save now, Jesus told them that it was by coming to him that we might have God's living water flow out of our innermost beings to bring the presence of God to many. Verse 39, by this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. 
All that Christ spoke of that day was still to happen because he had not yet gone to the cross and it would be there on the cross at his glorification as he gave up his spirit that the Holy Spirit, his spirit, would then be available for all who believed. For now, the people were still confused though and they were divided. Verse 40. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said he is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Well, we know that because of a Roman census, Jesus was indeed born in Bethlehem, the hometown of his ancestor, King David. But the crowd presumed that he'd been up born in Galilee, where he'd been living and where he'd grown up. The officers sent to arrest Jesus, they actually can't bring themselves to carry out their task. And so they return to the religious leaders empty handed. Verse 45, finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You see, these officers know that Jesus is like no other because no one ever spoke this way before. The ordinary people had begun to see Christ for who he was, but the religious leaders really looked down on them, thinking that the people were uneducated and cursed. They thought that none of their group had believed in Jesus, but they were wrong about that. Because it's then that Nicodemus speaks, asking the other members of the Sanhedrin to at least listen to Jesus. Take careful note, though, of how they answer him. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Let's read on in chapter 8 as we see a powerful encounter between Jesus Christ and a woman who'd been caught in adultery. But let me set the scene. This apparently occurred in the early hours of the morning after the last and greatest day of the feast. Jesus returned to the temple courts where he would soon reveal himself to be the light of the world. Once again, Jesus was relating everything he said to the ceremonies that were carried out during the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. Because from the second night of the feast, four large lampstands were placed in the temple courts. Each of these lamps had four branches that had huge oil lamps on each branch. And there, under the harvest moon, the religious leaders would dance each night as they waved flaming torches in their hands. 
It was a time of great joy. It was this explosion of light in the temple. And it was really all about recounting the glory, the Shekinah glory of God, the light of God that had once filled the sanctuary. The light of the world, the glory of God was once more in their midst, but they were blind to his presence. Verse 2. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have basis for accusing him. Let's stop there a moment. You see, as Jesus begins to teach, the leaders bring in this woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. And yet, miraculously, they don't bring a man with her, right? Under the law of Moses, both adulterers were to be stoned, but the man is not charged. And that leads many scholars to believe that the Pharisees may well have set this woman up to have a basis to accuse Jesus. You see, they must have been congratulating themselves on their clever plan at this point. And they even pretend to be eager to know what Jesus thinks by saying to him, teacher, you know, tell us what you think. Their idea was, you see, that if Jesus spared the woman, he would clearly be no great teacher and they would have a basis for accusing him of not honoring God's law. But on the other hand, if he condemned the woman in front of all of the people who'd gathered around to listen to him, he would have proved himself to them to be no friend of sinners. Their plan seemed to be going so well until Jesus answered them. Verse 7. But Jesus bent down and started to write in the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, till only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. You see, no one in Israel could be put to death without the testimony of two or three witnesses. And it was commanded in Deuteronomy 17 verse 6 through 7, that the witnesses themselves had to cast the first stones. And that was done to prevent false accusations, right? Jesus wrote in the dust, and then he paused and said that any one of them without sin could be the first to throw a stone at her. What did he write in the dust? Was it a list of their sins? Was it the fact that she was falsely accused? We are not told. What we are told is that it had an incredible effect on them. And I always say that this proves that with age comes wisdom because the oldest leave first, followed by the younger until no one was left. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. 
There's something very important here because Jesus was without sin. He was the only one who could have cast that first stone, and yet he showed her mercy instead of judgment. However, though Jesus accepted her just the way she was, he did not want her to stay the way she was. And so he told her, go now and leave your life of sin. Some people teach that because we're saved by grace, sin is really never an issue because it can always be forgiven. But that's not what we see here. Christ accepts us the way that we are. He loves us, but it's because he loves us that he wants us transformed. He wants us to be free of that old life. Verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is Jesus' second I am statement in the book of John. And what he says is linked to those huge lamps and the fire ceremony that had lit the temple during the feast. Like this woman, those who follow him are no longer to walk in the darkness of the life that they once lived. Rather, we are to live transformed lives because we now have the true light of life in our lives. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you accept us just the way that we are. It's just as I am, I can come to you. But Lord, that being said, once I have received your forgiveness, once I understand the great gift of what you have given to me, I no longer walk in the darkness of the life I once lived, but I follow you in those paths of light and truth. Lord, I pray that you would change all of our lives so that they would reflect more of who you are and that we would be your torches shining in the darkness of this world and let it all be for the glory of Christ's name. It is in his name we ask this. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.